0: You are listening to a Raw Collective
1: podcast. To all our wonderful listeners of What Matters Most, outside of the normal playing order for our episodes, we wanted to give you a particular heads up on this one. In this volume of What Matters Most, Antonia and I discuss attachment styles. Attachment styles are the relationships we hold with our primary caregiver and how this then plays out in our adult life be it in our intimate relationships, our friendships, our relationships with colleagues, or when indeed we become parents ourselves. The information in this episode is probably what I am most passionate about in the psychology field, and the knowledge we discuss has, I think, had the most influence on my own adult life. However, we want to really acknowledge that reflecting on your childhood how you connect with other adults and how indeed you may parent could raise emotions for you. It may make you stop and reflect on times gone past and how that impacts either negatively or positively on your present life. As such, we thought it was only fair to say we think it's a good idea that you listen to this volume when you have the space to reflect, to pause, to walk away and re-engage. So if you're on your way to work and about to enter an important meeting, or if you're rushing in between parenting duties or adult responsibilities, we do recommend that you save this one for another time. Please do though listen, because I think out of everything we have recorded, this information is just so valuable. Much love, Jackie.
0: Hello and welcome to Season 2 of What Matters Most, a podcast hosted by me, Antonia Preble, and my good friend, Jackie Maguire, who also happens to be a clinical psychologist. Together, we discuss issues that have a real impact on how we feel about and experience our lives. I get so much out of these conversations, and I hope you will too. Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode. We are recording this on a lovely, sunny but a bit chilly Auckland morning, which I think is perhaps my favourite weather.
1: Yes, I just love it because there's a freshness to it. It's nice
0: and brisk. You feel alive. Today, I actually feel excited for you, Jackie, Mm. about the conversation we're talking about today because you have been chomping at the bit to do this episode, I imagine because it is something that comes up in your work a lot and that has significant impacts in people's lives, and that it's a really good thing to understand. So, Jackie, what would you like to talk about today, and why would you like to talk about it? Oh, she's reversed the role.
1: <laughs> so, to our lovely listeners, today's topic is on attachment styles, and it is a pivotally important concept. For me personally, I think, and understanding human beings and how we relate to each other in the world, I think I've always known about attachment styles because of my unique upbringing and and my family with all the you know expertise that lies in this field and in my family of origin. But as an adult, I was interviewed on this topic probably seven or eight years ago, and at that time, I did quite a lot of research around it and. Understanding how our very early years and our relationship with our primary caregiver from a young age then impacts us as adults, not just in our romantic relationships, but also at work, with friends, if you become a parent to yourself, I think it is fundamental knowledge for every person to understand themselves, how they react under stress And to be able to then make some very clear conscious decisions on how they want to relate as an adult. So, yeah, I am very excited for this topic. And I think we can bring huge value to people's lives from exploring it.
0: Great. Okay. Some people may be familiar with attachment styles and attachment theory. Uh, that attachment sales comes from, but uh, some people might not, so perhaps we should start at the beginning and could you explain what attachment theory is? sure so so I think we have through this
1: podcast made it very clear that as human beings, we have a core need to belong to feel seen, heard, and understood, to feel safe at a very fundamental level and Attachment was first really looked at by a researcher called Bulby in the 1950s. And for anyone that's taken a Psych 101 paper, um, you may have seen images of a terry-tail monkey cuddling
0: a baby primate. Have you seen that image? I I did Psych 101 and did see that image, and I found it very upsetting at the time, and even more so now. Yeah, (laughs) but interestingly,
1: attachment was formed between that terry towel monkey and the baby. Anyway, we'll get there. So, Bulby knew... Attachments or relationships between a primary figure and an infant were really important in terms of meeting this core human need that we need to feel nurtured, cared for, seen. Understood. And in his early work, he started to look at some different patterns, really, around whether those needs were met or unmet. His work was then heavily developed by a researcher called Mary Ainsworth in the 70s. And again, some of you may have heard of this study where a primary attachment figure, generally a mother, and an infant between 12 and 18 months are in a room, and then a stranger comes into the room, then the mother leaves. And at some point, the mother comes back. And this experiment looks at how does the child respond, firstly, when a stranger comes into the room, secondly, when, when mum leaves, and then thirdly, how do they respond when mum comes back? And through, I suppose, this plethora of research, we have discovered in the science world that there really are four main categories of attachment. And basically, that means There are four different patterns of how an infant or a young child has interpreted relationships and the security of those relationships in terms of is my primary attachment figure in tune with my needs, do they respond to my needs, and do they help me emotionally regulate. So going back to those fundamental core needs of safety, security, be seen, be understood, and helped to be calm in distress. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense, yes. So those four categories are. The first one is is secure attachment. So secure attachment forms when the primary attachment figure Recognizes the needs of their child, they respond to those needs, in you know, in a calm and consistent manner most of the time. And no one is perfect, but but you know, the majority of the time they do, and they are able to help regulate their child when
0: they're distressed. So, and you know, there's are big and small needs, big, right? like big just and daily small needs. Life, you know, Mum,
1: I've fallen over and I've hurt my knee. You know, primary attachment figure is there to comfort and soothe. Mum, I'm crying because I'm scared and we're in a new situation. And I'm sorry because I know not all families are mothers in, the, in this role, but that really is where the research is stemmed from. So primary attachment figure, you know, I'm in a new environment, I'm scared, I'm overwhelmed, and does the primary attachment figure soothe, stick with the child until they feel comfortable,
0: et cetera. So that's secure attachment. And those needs... Might be directly articulated, or they might not be right? Like for little children, it's actually being in tune with the need that you just sense, because they, they might yeah. not be able to actually explain what they need. It to might you. be a two month old baby crying, yeah, and the
1: primary attachment figure sees the tears, picks up the baby, and tries to navigate what that baby needs. Do you need a feed? Do you need an nappy change? Do you need a cuddle? I'm responding to you, and I'm, I'm caring for you. If you have a secure attachment style. That basically helps form a platform for that young child that says, you have a safe base. I, as the primary attachment figure, am your home base, safe base. Therefore, you have got the confidence, you've got the stability, you've got the security and safety to go out and explore the world and know that when you want to come back, I'm here. And that's really called the circle of security, which many people might not have have seen. But basically, the needs of the child are, Watch me when I'm away from you. Be there when I'm away from you and welcome me when I come home. Mm -hmm. And if you take that through childhood, adolescence, adulthood, it's like that ability and I suppose calmness to go, I can go off and be independent, I can explore, I can discover, but I always know that I've got the backing behind me. So about, you know, and prevalence rates are always guesstimates, aren't they? But they would say about 60% of us would have secure attachments to our primary caregiver. Then there's a cluster of attachments which you would call insecure attachments. And I think it's most helpful to kind of break them down into the two key insecure attachments, which again at a high level basically means that my parent wasn't able to be in tune with my needs and to respond to my needs consistently. And I think it's really important to point out that that doesn't mean that a parent is malicious or doesn't want to respond to their child's or needs doesn't love their or child. doesn't love their child. that could occur for a myriad of reasons. You know perhaps that adult had a tricky attachment style with their own parents so they haven't learnt, or they don't know how to do it differently. There's actually a book called Ghosts in the Nursery, which talks about the fact that you know if we've got a certain attachment style ourselves growing up, and then we become a parent, things from our childhood start to show up because they're kind of embedded in us. Perhaps you've got a parent that's unwell. Perhaps you've got a parent that's got another sick child. Perhaps you've got a parent living in an abusive relationship. Perhaps you've got a parent with an addiction or, or a mental illness. And again, I'm not saying that any parent with a mental illness would, would not be able to form a secure attachment, but if you were struggling in that period of time or you didn't have good support around you. So if you then look at those two main insecure attachment styles, one would be what we would call anxious attachment or anxious resistant if you want the full name. What does that mean? Basically, that means my primary caregiver is sometimes available to me. So sometimes they see my needs, sometimes they respond to my needs, sometimes they are the absolute secure parent, but at other times they're unavailable. Maybe they're anxious themselves, maybe one of those things is going on. And so you then have a young infant trying to basically decipher why sometimes is my caregiver available to me and
0: why sometimes
1: are they not
0: And when you say available, you mean emotionally available. And able and willing to meet that infant's needs. Correct. And
1: so how does that show up? You can have a young child that then becomes very clingy and needy for the parent because that's a biological response to, you are my primary attachment figure and I'm reliant on you for survival. And I know that sometimes you are emotionally available to me. So I'm going to adapt in a way that tries to get that for me as much as possible. And so I'm going to cling to you, need you, whine for you, you know, get noisy in my need for my parent. You have children that become hypervigilant and aware to how their primary attachment figure is operating. So these are children that probably are acutely aware of dynamics, of emotions in adults. You know, they've got a hypersensitivity to kind of working out when am I going to be cared for and when might I be on my own. Mm. The flip side to this is then that those children can demonstrate the resistance side or the anger side Once the parent has kind of come back to them. So if my parent is emotionally unavailable to me or not in tune to my needs, I'm going to get clingy and needy. And then perhaps when they do start showing attention and care, I'm going to be pissed off with you because you haven't been there for me and I know that you can be. So you get this push-pull tension between I need you and I want you and how dare you not have shown up for me. So that's the kind of anxious resistance subcategory
0: of insecure attachment. And these children who are in this situation, they're not doing this Consciously, right? Like these Absolutely are, not. These are biological responses totally. that are deeply primal.
1: I think you have to think about all human beings as adaptive to survive. And so young children are hardwired to do what they need to to survive. And we are reliant on adults for our survival. And so absolutely, this is not a conscious, I'm going to cry, whinge, stick to you, then push you away. This is my body is adapting in, in the way I know how to get my needs met. Yeah. The other main category is is what we would call avoidant attachment, and this tends to result when you have a parent that is not emotionally available to their children and so you know that may be because of trauma in the household, that may be because of addiction in the household, that may be generally because there's abuse or there's something tricky that is going on at home where the parent is unavailable all of the time or pretty much pretty all of the much time. all of the time. And yeah. so again if you look through the lens of children are hardwired to survive, they have to be reliant on that primary attachment figure, what you then start to see show up is kids that basically disconnect and they become overly self-reliant. So they become independent from a very young age. They can be emotionally shut down. And in the face of challenge or stress or needs, they don't express it. So on the outside, they can look like they don't need anything. Internally, they're likely to be very distressed at times. So I think that's interesting to look through the lens of for that child, they have learned to preserve that relationship by disconnecting. Yeah. They have learnt to disconnect because perhaps they're less likely to trigger an incidence of anger, yeah. you know, from their parent. The last attachment style, the fourth one is called disorganized attachment. That's very, very rare. Basically, that occurs for children that come from the toughest of circumstances. They haven't been able to develop a map in their brain for survival because their life is chaotic. The primary adult in their life is inconsistent. And so you would see a range of behaviours from that child, from push-pulling to shutting down to needing to not wanting. You know, they just don't have a a root in their mind which shows them a pathway to establishing a relationship with their primary caregiver to get their needs met. Mm -hmm. So that's very rare. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think for this conversation, we look at the secure, the anxious, and the avoidant attachment style.
0: Mm Now, we're obviously talking about some pretty tough stuff here. Yeah. And I imagine as people are listening to this, it might be bringing up quite a bit for them because people will be thinking, well, what was their attachment style? And if it was not a secure attachment style, that will probably be quite difficult to be thinking about this. Do you have any advice, even as we are going through this conversation today and in the future, uh, how people can navigate these feelings that might be coming up and perhaps their feelings towards their parents?
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I think it's really important to acknowledge the kind of visceral response, the body response that we get when listening to this, especially if it's, you know, if this concept is new to you Or if you have, you know, not wanted to kind of look at or or revisit your childhood. I think there are many ways, and I suppose it's important to know that just because you've got a certain attachment style as a child, that doesn't mean that that's you for life. You actually can retrain. Your attachment style, you can relearn how to connect as an adult with people. You can learn to trust. You can learn to rely on people. And that I think is a hopeful message for people to know that just because your childhood experiences were a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that therefore by default you will act and feel that way for life. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to hold compassion for yourself. So I always look through that lens of we respond in a way that's adaptive. As children, we do whatever we need to, to survive. And at a certain point in time, however you learnt to respond to key people in your life was adaptive to you. So if you, as an adult find that in adult relationships, you have patterns of behavior or patterns of feelings in close relationships. You get worried that your significant other will leave you or not love you as much as as you do. You find that when people get too close to you, you shut down. You know, if you notice patterns like that as an adult, like be gentle on yourself. That Those kind of belief systems or, or those habitual ways of operating in relationships are there for a reason and be kind and gentle. I also think we need to look through a lens that our parents are human mm. and probably they did the best that they could. And that doesn't diminish your own experience. That doesn't make it perhaps any less painful or hard to revisit, but it does perhaps take the intent away. Mm. Most parents wouldn't have done this to hurt you.
0: They were doing their best, and yep. that their best may have absolutely been not good enough by any measure, mm. but there's always a reason for mm. their behaviour too.
1: And one of the methods as an adult, there are a number to kind of Reparent yourself from an attachment Mm. style theory. One of the methods that has great evidence behind it is to form a coherent narrative of your life. What does that actually mean? Basically, in a structured way, can you go back through your childhood year by year and say, What were my experiences, you know, through that period of time? What was my connection like with my parents? What was going on for them during that period of time? What was the impact for me through that time? And if you can form a coherent story of your life with the appropriate emotions attached to it, actually that is shown to be really valuable in your adult life because you kind of have got a clear message of why you are who you are. You perhaps have some understanding into what fed into that And it's shown to really put you in a position where you can then make decisions for your everyday life without perhaps the emotional overcharge if you haven't addressed some of that stuff. So what's an example of that? Perhaps... I was a child that grew up with a really sick sibling. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'm the eldest child. And in the first two years of my life, I had an absolutely secure attachment with my primary attachment figure. They were there. I was the apple of their eye. They were responsive to me. My needs were met. Life was good. And you probably can't remember that, but you'll see photos and you'll hear stories of that. Then maybe you had a sibling that was very unwell and spent a significant amount of time in hospital. All of a sudden, as a two-year-old, you have a parent that, is gone a lot of the time. Perhaps you're being looked after by grandparents or, mm. or other, you know, close family friends. You've got now parents that are anxious, that are worried, that are tearful, that are emotionally preoccupied with the health of, of your sibling. That doesn't mean that your parents don't love you. That doesn't mean that your parents don't care. I imagine that for your parents at that time, that was hugely distressing for them, knowing that they had such split. Needs, but the result is as a two-year-old all of a sudden your primary attachment figure isn't there like they used to and your needs were probably not attended to the way they were before Mm. and so you know an appropriate emotional response to that is sadness grief loss anxiety, worry, and if as an adult you can look back at that and say that was a really difficult period of time, I think, you know, I struggled significantly and suffered because of that, you know, like I can hold compassion for my parents that that would be such a hard position to be in, but yeah, it did impact me, that's a coherent narrative, that's quite different to an adult that looks back at that and kind of can relate to that experience with no emotion, Mm. they're so disconnected from that period of time it doesn't impact them. Mm. So, you know, being able to build some understanding of your life with some context around it is one, I suppose, pathway where people can form understanding of themselves and their journey, hold compassion for them and the the adults that were in their life Mm. and move forward. That's a
0: great idea. And it sounds like one that people could just do relatively straightforwardly on their own, right? Like you could just decide to write the story and, and see how you go. Yeah, I think you could totally do it by yourself. And I think you could do it with a therapist. I if think you felt you could, safer if, to do that. Yeah. yeah. As you were talking, I, I wondered also if um, our episode on the inner child might help people as they explore this stuff. In season one, we did an episode on the inner child that we all carry with us, which is about the idea that experiences when we were young really impact how we operate as an adult and how you can get in touch with your inner child and sort of understand them a bit more. So if as you're listening to this, if you think that might be uh, useful or you'd like another sort of angle on this topic, it might be, yeah, interesting to go and have a a listen to that one as well. So when Jackie and I were thinking about sponsors for this show, it was really important to both of us that we partnered with companies that align with our values and our way of thinking. Absolutely. It was a non-negotiable. So we are really delighted to team up with WHOOP, a beautiful food box company that helps you create delicious dinners in under 30 minutes.
1: Do you know, Antonia, my family have used WHOOP over the years, and if you're anything like me, which I know you are, life is busy and the mental load is large, and I'm always looking for effective shortcuts to make life simpler and easier. And with WHOOP, it is amazing. The veggies are pre-chopped. The sauces are handmade, and man, can you taste the difference. The recipes are just so easy to follow, and what I love is that the ingredients are sourced right here from New Zealand. And Antonia, this is the bit I know you will love. With Whoop, there is so much less chopping, less mixing, less faffing, and what does that mean? It means less cleaning up.
0: Yes, Jackie, you know me very well. The no chopping and way less cleaning up factors could be my favorite parts of WHOOP. And I actually find that WHOOP just makes my whole day easier. Just knowing that I don't have to think of what we're going to eat. I don't have to go to the supermarket. I just don't have to think about dinner at all is a huge weight off my mind.
1: I'm getting hungry talking about all this beautiful food. Do you know another wonderful thing about WHOOP is that everything is recycled through their back-to-base program. You just rinse out the containers, you put all your packaging back in the box, even the soft plastics, and you leave it out to be collected when your next box is delivered.
0: And if all that wasn't tempting enough, Whoop are offering our listeners 30% off their first box. So you just head to whoop.co.nz and use the code podcast at the checkout. That's w-o-o-p.co.nz and use the code podcast. So, Jackie, you mentioned a little bit before about how your attachment style as an infant might be affecting you in your adult relationships. Can we go into that in a bit more detail? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So again, if you think about that notion that your childhood experiences leave a residue or impact on your adult life, if you are somebody with a secure attachment with your primary caregiver, you have a narrative in your brain hardwired into you that says people will be there for me. They'll show up when I need them. I can rely on other people and I can be independent and explore the world and have new experiences and then return to those relationships. Like that is your blueprint. I suppose. So often for secure people when they form relationships, they are comfortable in their own skin. They hold probably pretty good self-worth. They ask for help when they need it. They give help when it's required. You know, they see their needs. They see other people's needs. There's probably low anxiety and stress in that relationship during tricky times because I think it's important to point out That as an adult, our attachment styles really don't show up in our relationships unless we're under stress or strain. So in your general everyday life, when things are going well, this is probably not a topic of conversation or you wouldn't see these signs being very apparent. It really is when we come under challenge or when things are tricky. And so in tricky times for people with secure attachment styles, they will be able to lean in to their partner through that time and trust that the relationship will be okay. Then take the anxious, resistant attachment style. As an adult in a romantic relationship, in times of strain and stress, I'm worried you'll leave me. Mm-hmm. I'm worried you don't love me as much as I love you. I am pulling and clinging to have a conversation with you about what's occurred. Like, I don't want to leave a topic Unsettled. I want us to talk about it right now. You know, I'm anxious that if we don't talk about it, then it will get bigger and and our relationship might end or we might have days and days of arguments. And so I have this fever. That we need to sort it out right now. And I can relate to this. I'm, I think I've got an anxious att- attachment style. I definitely historically have. I think I've been rebuilding it as an adult to be more secure now, but mm-hmm. definitely through my adolescence and early twenties, I would identify as having an anxious attachment style. And I can look back to relationships with ex partners, to my siblings, to my friends of being acutely worried that I have said something to upset someone, mm-hmm. of really sensing dynamics in a room. And being like I need to make this better you know I can sense that that person's unhappy so kind of that again hyper vigilance to seeing other people's responses and how they might be relating to you
0: everything you just said, I completely relate to. But interestingly, I feel with me, with my like romantic relationships, I am actually quite securely mm-hmm. attached in them and they come up, my my anxious attachment comes up in different relationships with friends or colleagues. Yeah. So these attachment styles, can they be Different for different, yes. different relationships and are they relevant to all relationships, not just romantic Correct. ones? Correct. Okay. Correct.
1: And maybe we get to how you decipher that in a bit. Okay. So that's one side of the anxious attachment as an adult. The flip side to that is then, and I'll use, an, I'll just be vulnerable. And this is an example from myself. My husband would go away. He'd go in like, spend time with his family. And historically, sorry, Pad, he wasn't very good at like sending me a text and saying, how was your day? And he was just immersed in what sure, he was doing, yeah. you know, and I, and I get that. And in a non-stressed, calm mode, I would be like, of course, you're just wanting to get as much out of the time with your family, friends as you need. In a heightened state, in an anxious attachment, activated state, I would get angry. Mm. why are you not there why are you not checking in poor petty would come home and i would be critical grumpy he'd get this like barrage from me when he walked in the door how awful petty i'm sorry i've said sorry many times but again i'm sorry <laughs> you know and it's that push pull right i want you show me that i'm still meaningful to you even when you can't see me which mm. is back to that circle of security right like when i go away from you i still want to know that you care about me and that i matter So that anxious attachment style is, you know, come, come, show me you care for me. But then when you return home or he would return home, it was that anger, that push away, that how dare you went there for me.
0: And Jackie, you are a brilliant woman doing great things in the world and you can recognize that you have this element to your attachment. I am the same. So... People don't need to be embarrassed or ashamed about this, right? Like if, if you recognize, I imagine it's incredibly rare, perhaps impossible for someone to be securely attached all the time to everyone. Like having the elements of these uh, less than desirable attachment styles is part of being a human. I just
1: think it's totally part of being human. And I think if we can normalize it and take the shame and judgment out of it, you can then get to a position where it's just acceptance and you take it as a, I just need to understand my blueprint so I know how to operate. And then we can communicate and develop a plan so that we try and not trigger each other off or activate each other. And the more in which you do that, your brain actually starts to form new pathways about how relationships operate and work. So I suppose that's what I was alluding to before. In the early stages of our relationship, that was most definitely the pattern. If I'm particularly stressed, busy at work, if I'm going through a challenging period of time, that can show up again. But most of the time now, we have communicated and had some understanding around attachment styles that now when Patrick goes away, I'm fine. You know, even if he doesn't message you, well, he does. Yeah, so, right. this is yeah. it. We've learned each other's needs. You know, I would really appreciate that once a day you check in. Yeah. You don't need to phone me, but I just love her. Hope you've had a nice day thinking of you. That's yeah. enough for me to go. You're still clocking me, even though you're not here. Yeah. And I have got better at being welcoming and loving and kind. And how was your trip when you come back? So, that shows that as an adult, you can absolutely together in partnership relearn this stuff. Mm. So that's the anxious attachment style and how that might show up in your adult relationships. Then there's the avoidant style. And that would be in moments of tension or if we're having a disagreement about something, I shut down. I absolutely blockade you. I don't want to have this conversation. I become avoidant. Perhaps I start coming home from work later. Perhaps I start becoming um, non-expressive in my communication. I've heard of I've heard of couples where one partner will just go silent for days on end and not enter discussion with their partner. And again, it's important to, I think, understand that probably that's this like very habituated and learnt pattern of I've got to preserve this relationship. And so to do that, I'm going to distance myself and shut down.
0: Because the conflict is too scary to actually engage with.
1: Yeah. Or just for me to be okay, I've got to rely on myself, not on you.
0: Okay. Yeah. Unfortunately...
1: Anxious attaches and avoidant attaches tend to get drawn to each other. Interesting. So you've got the worst dynamic, right? You've Mm. got the anxious, which is like, "Please, can we sort it out? I want you. I need you. Show me you love me. Show me you care. I need you for my sense of safety." And then you've got the other person who's like, "Go away. Shut down. Talk to you for five days. I'm not going to talk to you for five days." you know yeah but can you just see how
0: that plays out in so many people's lives absolutely and then the more anxious one is the more avoidant the other one is because they're both so triggered by exactly the equal and opposite thing yeah so
1: without knowledge or awareness or understanding you can see how that absolutely creates havoc in relationships the amazing thing is if you start to learn about this stuff, if you discover your attachment style, if you can be in a position where you can communicate when life is calm and not stressful and build understanding about each other's needs, together through compassion and understanding and a will to form a healthy relationship with each other, you can discuss and navigate how you want to do it differently. And absolutely that is possible.
0: That is so encouraging. And this is scary stuff, eh? Like it's requires a huge amount of trust and vulnerability to Mm -hmm. go to these places Mm -hmm. and to talk about these things. But if you feel like you're in a safe environment with a partner or, you know, whoever you are in this dynamic with to talk about it, it just has such huge benefits. Like it's a, it feels risky, right? Like it's a big step to take. Mm -hmm. And particularly if we're not used to doing this, but get them to listen to this episode, (laughs) you you know, like listen to it together, listen to it together, get on the same page because like we can feel so overwhelmed as to why we are the way we are, right? We're like, we're just habitually going about our days and lives and we react in certain ways and we might not like it, but it's so difficult to work out why. But this framework is a really great map of how you can talk about it with your partner with a significant other, whoever you want to work through the stuff together with because you've got the same language, Mm. which is so useful.
1: And then let's take it to a work environment, right? So you've got someone working in a team. Say they've got an anxious attachment style Perhaps that's a person that really prioritizes work relationships. They seek reassurance from their boss consistently. Have I done this right? Am I meeting client needs? You know, what do my team think about me? Perhaps they have, you know, a running commentary in their head about needing to be good enough, produce perfect work, ensure that they are valued in the team. You know, perhaps they they have a real need to work alongside people and they find it more difficult to work independently. So there are that aspects where it it can be tricky to have an attachment style. There's always a benefit though, right? The the benefit of being anxiously attached at work is that you're probably like a super sensor for risk. You can pick up when things are wrong, you've got an ability to really navigate team dynamics potentially. So there's the pro side of it. And then you take an avoider attacher at work. Perhaps they way prefer working on their own and they don't like to collaborate. Perhaps they, you know, get so deeply stuck into their work because it, you know, enables them to disconnect or detach from relationships at work, etc. So things can show up at the board table, <laughs> at the dinner table, <laughs> with your friends, like, you know, your attachment style under strain can show up with any interpersonal connection.
0: So how do you navigate this map, this framework of attachment styles at work? So I can, I can more understand having a conversation about this with your partner or with a friend or a family member, but a professional environment just is a bit different. So say you you do recognize your own style and you might have an idea using this framework about people's, who you work with, attachment style. How do you sort of then put it into practice at work in an environment where you don't feel like you actually want to talk about attachment style. Yeah, and
1: I think that's fair and reasonable that you don't want to go and talk to your colleagues about your childhood experiences. I'm
0: sensing that you have an anxious attachment style. That wouldn't go well, would it?
1: (laughs) But I think that comes down to, again, how aware and mindful are you of your own patterns of behavior with other people when when you're stressed, then being able to catch yourself or to know the triggers. So, If you're somebody that has got an avoidant attachment style, perhaps a trigger is a colleague in your team that emails or calls you six times a day to ask questions and maybe you feel overwhelmed by that, it's too much contact and your natural response is to shut down, is to not respond, is to just ignore the emails that come through, which then is not great, right, for the team dynamic and the working relationship. I suppose it's one and being able to recognize your habitual responses to say, is this helpful for me or for my work right now? Or is there a way that actually would be more helpful for me? So I think in that example, what are your responses? Regulate your internal distress by breathing or mindfulness or doing what you need to calm. Is that about actually having a conversation with the person around can we check in as a, as a team about how we create some periods of time where we're able to deep work for example mm. so you're not saying you contact me too much but you're asserting a need in an effective way of it'd be really helpful if we could get some time where we can get into deep work and flow without interruption perhaps you have conversations as a team around how do we want to work together and collaborate well together what's our map of that collaborative work vs. independent work so you might Form a way with your leader, or if you are the leader, having some conversations like that to mm. to try and kind of get your needs met. And so, yeah, I think it's about navigating it from a calm perspective of how do I problem solve around this rather than reacting
0: in the moment from that kind of heightened attachment state. Yes, does and it well, makes sense. It does make sense, and yeah, it makes perfect sense about how you can manage your own self in that environment from the understanding you have about yourself. And I think we would want to avoid the trap of psychologizing other people. I think you
1: really need to avoid the trap of doing that.
0: Yeah. And deciding what their attachment style is when you really actually have no idea and you only have a brief window into a part of them. However, using this understanding as a framework and you might be able to, recognize behaviors that perhaps points to these uh, various styles. And perhaps you could just use that for compassion sake to, you know, to recognize that this person is also behaving in a way they're doing their best. So how can you help them Yeah. without, again, having to talk about it, but just recognizing their behavior and with compassion and saying, okay, well, how can I help them get their needs met?
1: And without turning this into an organizational psychology podcast, because that's what I do in my day job, You have to remember that this stuff shows up when people are under strain, when they don't feel comfortable. And so for anyone out there who's a worker, if you look at the research about the number one factor for high-performing teams, it's a phenomenon called psychological safety. People feel able to be themselves, to show up, to speak up without fear of judgment, shame, retribution. So if you've got a team dynamic where people are supportive, encouraging, respected, where you can raise issues and have good conversations without it turning personal or nasty, you're less likely to activate people's attachment styles under stress because they feel safer at work and in their team. Mm-hmm. So you can come at this from many angles, but positive culture and good base relationships are a buffer to you know someone feeling like they're psychologically on edge. Mm-hmm.
0: Prepare for your next adventure with Emma Sleep. For over seven years, Emma has transformed the sleep of more than four million people worldwide by working with sleep experts to carefully design and engineer products that provide great support and pressure relief for your most peaceful sleep ever. Now you can wake up feeling fully refreshed, recharged, and ready to face the day with a smile. Upgrade to the coolest, most supportive sleep today with their range of mattresses, mattress toppers pillows, mattress protectors, and even ensembles and bundles where you can save more. And if you're still unsure about upgrading, don't worry. Emma Sleep offers a 120-night trial for their mattresses and beds. So on the occasion you don't find it a match for you, you can simply return it within the 120-day period and get 100% of your money back guaranteed. But that's not all. They also offer a 10-year warranty for their mattresses and free delivery nationwide. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to emmasleep.co.nz and shop using our code, YOUMATTER, for an additional discount. Circling back to romantic relationships for a minute. Are there, so you said that the anxious and avoidant are often drawn to each other, but that can create some issues are there certain kinds of attachment styles that are more suited and if there are the ones that aren't should this be like a red flag for people if they're getting into relationship like should we avoid someone who seems to have a particular attachment style or is again that not a wise thing to do because for one we don't really know and also all these things can be worked through.
1: I think probably the non-politically correct answer is if you have two people that are both securely attached, the pathway is probably easier for them. doesn't mean it's better than other relationships, but it's probably smoother sailing. I think if you fall in love with someone, you meet someone and you won't know on date one, two, three, ten 10, what their attachment style is, they're probably not under strain and stress. You know, when you meet someone, best foot forward. Absolutely. <laughs> you're in the honeymoon phase. Life is sweet and good in that early stage of relationships. We all know, you know, that feeling. I've got no issues, no, are no. talking about. <laughs> I'm perfect and you love all aspects of me just the way I am. But I think as you then go through relationships, if you have got a partner that is willing to look at this stuff, say you've got one partner that's secure and one partner that's avoidant, Really what you need is for the secure partner to be willing to walk alongside the avoidant partner to help them retrain their brain Mm -hmm. around becoming more secure in that relationship. And so it's, like, it's really interesting what you said around. I feel really secure with Dan, but I might not feel secure in other relationships. Yeah. There's a wonderful quiz online, and actually, my whole family did this because you can imagine our dinner table chats in my family of origin. <laughs> and we all went away and did this attachment style quiz. It's it's from a website called the Attachment Project, and I'm sure we can put the link in the notes Great. for this episode. And it asks you a series of questions about your two primary attachment parents, so so your mother or your father or, or whoever those figures were in your life, then it asks you if you've got a partner now about your relationship with that partner and then it asks you in general with other people. And so interestingly, I did it again this morning before we came into this episode And it showed very clearly that my parents and my partner were really secure and my relationship with others was still in the secure quadrant, but it was less secure than the others. And that really fits with my life story, I think, around relying on other people, feeling like people see and hear and understand me, feeling like I matter, feeling like I'm safe with others. And you know, when I look back over my life story, moving countries as a seven-year-old and being different to everybody else and struggling with relationships fits that model, right? I'm secure at home in my family, but outside in the world, I feel less secure. And so I think it's a really interesting exercise for people To take to go actually ask some really clear, guided questions, which gets you to reflect and think. Yeah, Um, I want to do it. Yeah, well, well, when we log off, you can. Yeah. And I think shows you this map of perhaps where you get activated or what behavioural patterns and relationships might show up in different settings.
0: Great. So, Jackie, as people are learning about attachment styles and reflecting on their own experiences as young children, they might think think perhaps they want to talk about what they are learning with their primary caregivers. Is that a good idea?
1: There's no easy answer to that because I think it depends on the capacity of your primary caregiver. So if you are able to have a conversation that is calm and explorative with your primary caregiver and they can put your needs into that conversation they can stay calm they have an ability to bring compassion to that conversation and for it to be a healing conversation with you it may be amazing and healing and bonding for you and your primary attachment figure if you have a primary attachment figure that just does not have the ability to do that Perhaps they find it difficult to see things from another person's perspective. Perhaps they struggle emotionally themselves. Perhaps they come from a viewpoint where they can only see the world through their own lens. Then I think you have to ask what you're trying to get out of that conversation. And I think you can do the healing work by yourself without necessarily needing to talk to them about it. So I think the core answer to that is, will it be helpful and bring you closer together
0: Or are you risking more hurt and damage to yourself and to their relationship? Okay, that's great to know. And again, good to hear that you don't need a conversation with them in order to do this work very successfully on your own. Well, perhaps you just go,
1: I think this conversation will be too painful for Mm -hmm. them and I actually don't want to hurt them. What good will that do now? That may be your viewpoint also.
0: And that's okay. And again, you can do this work on your own and still get all the benefits of it. Talking to your parent is not an essential part of this work. Absolutely. I just want to cover one more topic before we go, and that is parenting. Yes. So, again, I can imagine lots of people listening to this are not only thinking about how they were parented, but about how they parent their children. and. Yeah. Can we talk a bit about that? And also when you talk about secure attachment and needs being met, what we actually mean by that, like what's like reasonable amount because life happens and we know that we cannot, it's literally impossible to meet every single one of our children's needs all the time. So I just don't want people who are doing a great job in like the normal way <laughs> of doing a great job, being a parent, being worried that perhaps they are inspiring an, a non-secure attachment sure. in their children. But at the same time, there may be room for improvement with some people. yeah, so, yeah, so if you take
1: the true definition, it is I'm emotionally available. So when I am with my kids, I'm present for them. That doesn't mean that I can't multitask and do anything outside, you know, like I don't need to be on the floor playing with them twenty four seven to be emotionally available. It means, for example, that if I'm in the kitchen cooking and my child has stubbed their toe and they come up to me and they say, "You know, mum, I'm hurt." that I can stop what I'm doing, turn around and attend to them. Like mm-hmm. I've got the availability, the cognitive, emotional capacity to respond to their
0: needs. As opposed to you're cooking the dinner, they're in the playroom and they say, "Mom, can you come and play with me? And you say, no, sorry, I'm cooking dinner. Later. Well, you probably
1: wouldn't even say that. You'd probably be like, not now, don't bother me. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, is that okay? I think the first response was, I'll be with you in a second. Let mm. me just finish what I'm doing because you've acknowledged, I've heard you, I've clocked you, I'm coming for you. Yeah. Zero response or shutting someone down is not really responding to their need. Gotcha. So so can you see the delineation between yeah. the, between those two things? The, the second element is that I can skillfully respond to your needs. So if you're distressed, upset, fragile, tired, angry, I can sit with you and co-regulate. I can respond to your needs. And you don't need to be a psychologist to do that. When you see a child that's really upset, what do they need? They need a hug. (laughs) You know, if they're really scared, what do they need? They need you to, to just surf. to, to yeah. be with them for a yeah. bit a- until they feel comfortable. And so what would be an example of that? You know, you've got a child that's going to a birthday party and they're nervous because it's a new setting or they don't know many people. You know, to be in tune with that, you'd be aware that your child's feeling like that. You'd probably crouch down, talk to them in a soothing voice, come up with a plan of what they need if you've got a three, four-year-old, et cetera. And you just respond to that in a non-judgmental, compassionate way. If you're not responding to that need, what do you do? Go off, you'll be fine. Yeah. You know, you'll be right. Go off, go and play with the other kids. Or it's okay, like you put your anxiety onto them, you know, like, oh, it is really scary, isn't it? You just stay here with me, you mm-hmm. know, and, and kind of hyping up their anxiety, maybe with, you know, what somebody does if they're anxiously attached themselves and, yeah. and they're perhaps kind of project, triggered, triggered by, but, by them. their
0: children's pain, yeah.
1: So we need to look at this conversation again through a lens of non-judgment. We have adapted as children in our primary relationship with our caregiver by means of surviving and by preserving that relationship. That is how you are hardwired. And if you have never addressed your attachment style, if you have never reparented yourself as an adult and you are anxious or avoidant, likelihood is there will be scenarios that that plays out when you become a parent yourself, which is this whole notion of ghosts in the nursery, um, which I think is quite a vivid, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know whether I like it or not, but that's the vivid imagery that gets sticks in your brain. (laughs) It sticks in your brain. So how might that show up? You know, someone that has an avoidant attachment style may not emotionally respond to their needs, may walk away and go and get space when they Mm. see that their child is distressed because it's overwhelming for them. It's too much. And they've spent their life managing other people's emotions by shutting down. Or if their child's angry, throwing a tantrum, that sort of thing. Yeah, either lashing out and responding back that way or literally kind of deadpanning, Mm. not responding to that. You have someone that's got an, um, an anxious attachment style themselves, it may be very difficult for that parent to let their child explore the world, to have some independence. That may be the helicopter parent. They also want to feel loved by that child, right? So they might have a real pull from their child around needing to hear their children tell them how much they love them, Mm, for for example. So again, I think with all things, it's about awareness. It's about being able to spot what triggers you, to use good skills to calm yourself. And they are your basic skills, breathing from your belly, grounding by trying to be really present in your environment, whether that's pushing your feet into the floor, you know, naming what you can see around you, squeezing a cush ball, whatever it is, using those skills to stay calm so that you can then say, how would I like to show up and respond to my child rather than just being an automatic, you know, habitual
0: response. So this all can get better is the encouraging news. It's about recognizing with compassion that you are a human being who is doing your best Mm -hmm. and and the way you are behaving very specifically comes from how you were raised as a child and Mm -hmm. your own experiences. And there are things that you can do right now to improve attachment with your child. I'm interested, Jackie, on phone use Mm. in parents and whether that Mm. impacts attachment with children.
1: You know, it's really interesting in my prep for today because I've spoken on this topic numerous times across media outlets and today is the first time I've really acknowledged that question. Maybe it's the first time I've spoken about this topic since I've become a parent and I got really upset reading the research because I have to self-reflect on how much does my phone show up and play a role when I'm around my kids And the research breaks this down really to like continuous use of a phone. So, someone that's submerged in their phone versus infrequent uh, distraction. So, whether you pop and get a text or you get an email and you glance at it and then put it away. I think if you look at attachment, we know the answer without looking at the research. Mm. Attachment is about being aware of your children's needs and being present with them, being present with them and being able to respond. If you are in a hole, that's what I call that in my house. If you are in a hole on your phone, are you aware of your children's needs? Can you presently respond or are you distracted? And I think I'm okay at this. I definitely see parents that do it differently to me, but there are times where I am in a hole and I just felt hugely guilty actually reading that as I was prepping for today. And I'll try and apply the same things I'm telling everyone else, which is to be compassionate. And I think I do a pretty good job with my kids the majority Mm -hmm. of the time. And, you know, they're happy, healthy,
0: lovely kids. But this is an area, now that you know, for improvement. And we can always improve. I mean, it is, being on our phones, we know it's an addiction. We're addicted to it. So we have to, I mean, we yeah, we try in our house to not be on our phones in front of the boy's unless we have to be. So if we have to take a call, if we have to respond to an email, because that just is the realities of living it now, and particularly if you're trying to manage a working life as well as a domestic parenting life. But, it's difficult to stick to those yeah. rules because it's addictive. And parenting's really hard.
1: <laughs> and I try to now say, say to my girls, for example, I just need to make one phone call yeah. for work. Is that, you know, like, girls, I'm just going to make one call and then I'll get off my phone. I almost communicate that and give them a heads up. Because that's different than just scrolling, scrolling
0: through Instagram. But here's well. my
1: example. I was at a Botanic Gardens in New Zealand. Probably Ola, my eldest, was two on the playground and there was a parent on the park bench on her phone and her child was on the playground one calling out for the mother to look mom look at me mom look what I'm doing no response from the parent she was just in her phone then the child started to interrupt all his play sorry Again, I look at that through a lens of I'm trying to seek attention from mum by calling. She's not listening. I'm then going to get disruptive. I'm going to see if that gets mum's attention. You know, didn't work. I'm then trying to like look at the mum and get her to come and parent her child because, you know, they were getting in the way and, and not being particularly kind to Ola. Still no response. Then the child ran away. Oh. What got the response? The child running away. Yeah. So mum finally put the phone down, looked for the child and then lost it. At the child. And I just thought. That's so sad, isn't it? Isn't it sad? Yeah. This is a kid going, Mum, you know, circle of security, watch me, be invested in me, be interested in me, let me know I still matter. And Mum wasn't able to do that. Look, clearly there's judgment in my voices and I'm trying to hide it, but it was such a difficult, such a difficult situation. To watch, and I have no idea what was going on for that parent, you know, that's so right. from that perspective, there's no judgment. Yes. I have absolutely no idea what was going on in her day, her life, et cetera, but in that moment, it was such a clear pattern of seeking for connection, seeking for attachment, and a child will do anything to try and get it, and then being reinforced for the running away because that's how they got the attention and I think we have to remember that sometimes for children they don't care what kind of attention they get as long as it's attention positive or negative negative. and so for me that was just such that has always stuck in my mind I see it from parents on the side of the swimming pool I see it at playgrounds I see it all the time and what do you often hear mum look at me mum you know and it's like they get louder and louder to try and and gain mum's attention and so I've even seen it with teenagers in cafes where the teenagers will say to the parent can you put your phone away mm-hmm. like you've asked To come out with you, and now you're on your phone. And so I just think it's a reminder for me included, for all all of us, that, you know, we do not have to be everything to our children 24 7, majority of the time, right? But if you have an addictive pattern of being submerged in your phone where you don't hear or see what's going on around you, you have to be aware that that probably will impact your
0: kids. That's right. And that is something that we can improve that. Totally. It's the harder choice to be present with your children as opposed to scrolling through Instagram because that's way more fun. And sometimes you just feel like you want a bit of a break from Mm. the thing that's hard in front of you. But knowing, as you say, that that has Mm. an impact and the work now will absolutely pay dividends later is the thing to come back yeah. to. And,
1: and I hand on my heart say I'm not perfect at this. Yeah. As I say, I got really upset reading the research because it was a bit of a reflection moment for myself. So, you know, I think we just look at that through a lens of how do we want to do it differently from here.
0: Yeah, we can always be better tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jackie. That was a really interesting, comprehensive chat and I feel like I understand um, attachment theory so much better now and can see how to to put it into practice in my daily life and relationships. So yeah, I hope everyone listening also felt that. And yeah, good luck using this new framework of understanding. We hope it brings about some fruitful conversations with those people in your life that are important and that you want to have better dynamics with. Yeah. Thanks, Antonia. That was What Matters Most for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you did enjoy this week's episode, it would be great if you could rate, review and subscribe to this podcast as that helps let other people know that we're here. Thanks again. See you next time.